Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney on the newest podcast from Idol Thumbs. This weekend, we're inspired by The Witness and the concept of the prestige game. Does John Blow's latest deserve the heady praise lofted on only the most esoteric of critical darlings? And on another note, what about games that might be critical darlings, but they're getting lost in the sort of swirling sea that is Steam sales? And finally, we're going to go all out in a Fargo Season 2 spoiler discussion at the end of the show, so you can put on your extra fluffy earmuffs if you don't want your folksy metaphors spoiled. But Rob, let's start with prestige games. And, you know, this is all inspired by The Witness coming out this week, a... uh, If you don't know about The Witness, and you probably do if you're listening to this show, but I'll indulge, it's a first-person puzzle game set in a very pretty world with just absolutely the most esoteric little tracing puzzles and and other puzzles that are built into this world. I think what interests me the most about The Witness is that there's a few things, right? Is one, everything I I see looks an awful, it reminds me an awful lot of Myst. Sure. uh, Back in the day, which is a game that... (laughs) Most a lot of game critics turned against, and it, it's it's sort of place in history was sort of almost revised out of existence, right? It was one of those popular games of its era, uh, sort of defined the early CD-ROM era, and then everyone sort of woke up and was like, "Mist was garbage," and like suddenly, <laughs> like Mist stopped being a it counted among the classics. Uh, I don't know if that opinion has been revised again uh, since then. Probably should be, but that's kind of where things left. But what interests me is that. Nobody makes games like Mist anymore. But then every time I see uh, pictures of The Witness and video of what people are doing in The Witness, I'm like, boy, that that sort of that sort of seems like <laughs> that sort of seems like Mist. It's a beautiful yeah. environment, and then it's just like you know, uh, punch to the throat levels of difficulty puzzles. Yep. <laughs> I mean, am I wrong? You're not wrong at all. Um, my, so I had a, a freelancer review this game for us, Heather, Heather Alexandra. And, you know, she both thought the game was brilliant and she hated it. You know, she, she enjoyed the experience, but also hated it because of that. Because of the, the sort of just not only the difficulty level, but the fact that she felt the game was mocking her at every turn. Like I said, I'm enjoying the puzzles. I'm enjoying the game. I'm enjoying how pretty it is. And I, and I hate the game a little bit as well. That's an what interesting, <laughs> that's an interesting feeling uh, that, yeah. that Heather got. Because that reminds me like vividly of... Um, a piece that I want to say it may have been like Mitch Kirpata mm, uh, sure. wrote around the time that uh, Braid came out, which was this feeling he got that he had John Blow on his shoulder constantly being like, this means something. Pay attention <laughs> to this. This is metaphor. And eventually he just found that that sense of the author so grating that he just kind of tuned out of the game. Might have been Mitch Kirpata. Might have been. Uh, someone else I, I can't remember uh, right now, so I apologize for, for not correctly citing my source. But that's an interesting – it's interesting to see that same feeling come up uh, years later with, with this game. But, you know, sort of apropos of our discussion last week, last week we were talking about a lot of times – Games, the, 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 like the collective uh, critical apparatus, uh, that, that follows games, right? The, the collective yeah. critics don't really handle something, uh, with, that's, that's really different, uh, really unusual, really iconoclastic. Uh, you tend not to see 
a ton of consensus around those games because they are divisive. They are unfamiliar. It's it's difficult to know what to make of them. Yeah. The exception seems to be a game like this, which sort of almost came pre-approved as yes. you know what it, like it was it was completely taken at, at face value on its um on on the things it was attempting to do and i'm not sure i see that same trust extended to a lot of other games right this is a game where people i think went into it i think it comes through the reviews people w- approached this game with this attitude that it was going to be this work of uh you know really brilliant uh brain teasing <laughs> art yeah. and I don't know. I, I'm just, I am mostly, I, I'm sort of mostly marveling at that phenomenon. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It, it's almost as if uh, these these very, very few games, these sort of prestige games are inoculated against the usual uh, grumbling of, of sort of critics who are having a hard time stamping their head against something. And, you know, a couple of, maybe a couple of other examples, sort of the work of that game company feels as if it sort of fits this, you know, flower and flow and journey, you know, which this is not to say anything negative about those games, just that, you know, journey was game of the year for a lot of publications. It was, you know, t- it got tens or, you know, perfect scores or whatever from a lot of places that don't normally give, a lot of attention to, you know, smaller games or indie games, basically. You know, Braid is another good example. Fez is kind of a perfect example of this. Yes. Of, you know, especially it seems very it seems similar as to a Witness. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's a very, I think it's a case where, you know, people sort of know the person making the game. You know, there's a, there's a narrative in the, in games media. There's a narrative about this sort of lone genius or small band of geniuses who are, who are crafting and creating this very special thing. And it's a very special thing that's also somewhat polished. It kind of has to be somewhat polished or else it'll just be, you know, sort of treated as if, oh, this is a weird, interesting thing on Itch.io that maybe I'll go play, but not, it's not evangelized the same way. Um, you know, even some of Brenda Brathwaite's work uh, or Brenda Romero's work, uh, you know, her sort of, um, she did a series of board games that would, the mechanics are the message and the, the game about trains was sort of one of the, you know, main, main examples there. You know, it just feels like there are very, these very specific, very few examples where this happens. And it's interesting to me that, that, that occurs even at all, you know, given, given the whole idea of the critical consensus that we were talking about last week that you brought up. It's weird. It's a weird it's, thing. I don't really know why it happened. Well, and it's 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 strange like almost who the uh who gets the benefit of that doubt. Yeah. Right? Because I I it's it's interesting to me that maybe it's it is this cultivation of an identity, right? That that yeah. like you have someone like John Blow out there sort of cultivating this this persona as uh this really um demanding perfectionist uh genius who's who's off making this completely unusual thing people barely know what it is until they see it um and i feel like you can i i I do feel like maybe there's a little bit of that with uh with fez as well where people had this personal relationship and personal idea of what phil fish was all about uh you see it extended to i i think maybe developers whose works maybe don't end up holding up that well like uh, remember, remember, like that year and a half, two years where where Jason Rohr was, yes, oh uh, my God. A, a game design genius <laughs> who was making games that mattered. Um, 
and 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 so much of that whole cult of personality thing was, you know, people were writing about him going to like fancy parties and he was like, "Oh, I didn't wash my hair. I hope that's all right." You know, there's a whole it just feels like this whole cult of personality around my these My children folks live is, in a cabin and aren't yes, vaccinated. We live yeah. in the cabin and and we don't use diapers. They pee in the sink. You know, there's a whole it's almost like, you know, maybe not entirely with Brenda Brath, uh, Brenda Romero and that game company as much, but there's there's still an element uh, of of sort of like these people are different in some way. They're, they have a weird arcane genius in some fashion, you know, that <laughs> makes them so, that makes them worthy of this attention and, and all of these pieces about their personalities and their worlds and their lives. And I don't necessarily like, okay, with the Jason Rohr example, I think that entire thing did actually get pretty silly. Like, I, I, oh, I yes. never actually liked any of his games. Uh, and it, the the more I heard about him, the more he did sort of sound like a Portlandia sketch. Yes, <laughs> uh, come to life. But I'm more just. It is just interesting to me that there that a lot of games that I would consider like prestige pieces seem to be of a type, and I'm not even sure Brenda Romero's games necessarily count because they're so sure they're so clearly um like this is this is sort of the um. Like these prestige games are 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 like improbably large scale releases, right? They 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 attain this wide audience. I don't yeah. think Brenda Romero's work was really meant to do that, and so they became really important games within the discourse of people who follow like you know the like the academic side of Academics, games. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah. I don't think it was like. <laughs> the experience at the end of Train is not right. something that like everybody had the year it came out, right? It was right, like, of course. Man, could you believe it when it turned out to be concentration camps? <laughs> yeah, that wasn't the uh, the new cake is a lie for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, so I guess we are definitely talking about sort of two levels of prestige here. There's sort of an academic prestige and and the sort of maybe more what we're talking about here is that like prestige in the press or prestige in this sort of world of people who care very much about games and play everything, which is not a very big world, uh, to be fair. But it, yeah. it seems big to us because we're in it and we work in it every day, of course. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I keep coming back to is how many of these games... I think a lot of these games point to insecurities that gaming's biggest advocates have about the medium as a whole. Yeah. Uh, that these are games that, like, so in the case of that game company, these are games that basically throw out a lot of the things we traditionally associate with a game, right? There's no, there, there's no, re there's, there's not much in the way of failure, a little more so in Flower, uh, less so in, in, um, in Journey. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it, they're, they're games that are about sensation and, uh, like, you know, they're games about, uh, thoughts on like life and and death and the meaning of the, those experiences. Yeah, the big ideas, kinds yeah. of experiences. Yeah, yeah. And they're kind of the they're kind of made for people who get tired of writing about shooters, right? Yeah. Like get tired of <laughs> writing about like uh, you know here here's here's a five minute gameplay video of the new doom where you're gonna see like a hundred things just brutally butchered in front of your eyes uh, for yeah. your entertainment and something like that game game company's work comes along and not only provides a respite from that but also points to what a lot of us at least claim to want to see games become right 
and and I think with the, with games maybe like The Witness, you see um you you see games that are so convinced of their own value <laughs> that I don't mean that negatively, right? Yeah, like no, I I totally because yeah because it's easy because I think I see a lot of games have uh, like you know you notice how a lot of times in games they have this reflexive like breaking of the fourth wall and sort of they they sort of hang a lampshade on on their <laughs> own like adherence to genre conventions and they're almost like shame faced and being what they are right. Uh, and have a game like The Witness come along, which is so carefully considered. Uh, and yeah, maybe a little arrogant, but it also doesn't make those compromises, right? It doesn't sort of try to wave off what it's trying to do and be like, haha, I don't really mean it. It is convinced of its own value. It's convinced of its own meaning. It's convinced of its own message. And I think that is a very, um, that's a very attractive thing. I, yeah. I feel like, and I, and I think that is something that, that can, and, and I think a lot of people who are approaching this game approached it sort of granting those premises because the game, the game itself and the creator almost demanded them. Yeah, I think uh, I actually really do appreciate those things about the game. If it were a, you know, a goofy joke after certain puzzles and it was like, aha, I made you do the the thing, you know, that would be so much less appealing than than actually playing something that believes in itself, basically. But what's interesting to me is the the backlash I'm seeing uh, is a lot of people not necessarily like disputing the game's quality, not even necessarily like saying I can't stand being uh, in the mind of John uh, Jonathan Blow. Yeah. What I'm seeing is more and more people being like, this game is really freaking hard, and I want to <laughs> sure. like it. I want to have fun, except I'm wandering around from roadblock to roadblock, and that's not fun. And you you know the, the people people who are in this is something I see again and again. Uh, people who really liked the game. Are going out there and and saying, well, and I, I have totally gotten this advice uh, many a time. <laughs> oh, just take some time away from the game and think about it, and you'll feel so proud of yourself when you finally solve the puzzle. <laughs> um, and it's like, yeah, I guess, but man, that is devoting an awful lot of like, <laughs> it's devoting an awful lot of mental yeah. real estate uh, yeah. <laughs> to the puzzles and peculiarities of this of this one game. So I'm just I'm just kind of inter- I am just kind of curious, like how many people are going to have like really going to have that magical experience versus how many people are going to basically end up they're going to find themselves stuck with this game and then they're going to eventually say, OK, I'm just going I'm just going from walkthrough to walkthrough at this point. You know, I'm worried about that for myself. You know, like I, I'm a couple of hours in and I, I do get excited when I solve a puzzle at this point because they get they ramp up very, very quickly. Now, the first, you know, 15 minutes of the game or so are are just are brilliant. I think I think they <clears throat> excuse me, really, really do teach uh, exactly sort of what's going on, how to figure things out, how things are embedded in the environment. You know, the puzzles start incredibly simple and then go to a level of complexity that feels very comfortable right in those first 15 minutes. So I feel like. Man, if, if if the game really just sort of continued on that sort of gentle, gentle, tough but fair curve, I would be all about this. I would be in love with this game. But it it, it just takes an absolute climb. A, a game like this, we want to tune to be maybe a little bit dumber than we are or just yes. a, a tiny bit just smarter. Yeah, yeah, but it, it, it's sort of like that George Carlin bit, right, where you're on the road and everyone going 10 miles slower than you is just a clueless asshole and everyone yep. going 10 miles faster is a maniac. 
Yep. Um, and that's, <laughs> I, I feel like a game like this, like, I don't even know how you'd begin to tune it, right? Because, like, it's... I I want I want the puzzles to be challenging yet satisfying for someone exactly as blinkered and stupid as I can be. Yes, exactly. Uh, so. <laughs> exactly. You're absolutely right. God, I guess this is what makes puzzle design the most. I I think personally, you know, this is this is just somebody who knows a little bit about game dev, not a pro developer. But I feel like puzzle design is the hardest thing to get right because of that, because nobody is on the same level. You know, two two children at the same grade in school aren't going to be on the same level. You know, so, of course, adults who are completely different, have different experiences in life are going to be approaching this from a hundred different angles. So I wanted to ask you, though. Yeah. Um, so we've been talking about the puzzle aspect of the witness, but obviously then there's also the uh, – you know the the, the 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 themes we've been talking about, right? That this yeah. is also sort of a a statement of uh, the, the the meaning of the witness. Uh, this yeah. is a statement of a of a point of view in some ways, and I'm curious Very how that much. comes through uh, in between abstract logic puzzles. Like, it is like not when do subtle. you access? Them? <laughs> it is it is really not subtle. There are, there are portions of this game that will just literally lecture you about science and ethics and philosophy. It is. But like, what's the what's the delivery device? Like, is is like Navi coming out and being like, "Hey, <laughs> I wish." Hey, listen. It's, hey, uh, God is dead. Kierkegaard, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, there are audio logs. There's audio portions and subtitles and so on and so forth. So it it is a pretty traditional, uh, you know, means of of getting those ideas across. Traditional and gamey, I guess you could say. Uh, which I, I don't mind personally. I, I'm fine with that. Um, but I know, I know some folks are going to, you know, will and have taken some issue with, with the uh, lack of subtlety there, especially in a game that's so kind of really, I, I, I will certainly give it credit for being brilliantly designed. There's, there's, there's sort of no going against that, you know, but, but it is such a gamey device, you know, for this esoteric, you know, puzzle game that is, that is light years beyond my comprehension and everyone else's, you know, it's, well, there's audio logs. Uh, it seems to be getting a little bit harder out there for people making weird games, uh, games yes. that truly are sort of uh, breaking from the mold. And what 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 brought that to mind actually is um, weird games with the budget, especially. You know, it, it feels like you could, if you're one person in your garage, maybe you can make something. But you know, if you actually have a team and a vision beyond yeah. sort of a, a personal twine game or something, yes, exactly. yes, exactly. And I, I think. You know, today today I was sort of surprised and a little bit bummed out uh, when I when I came across a story, uh, actually a blog entry from uh, Arkin Games, uh, the 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 head of the studio over there, Chris Park. Uh, this is the studio that's behind a couple really interesting and and odd strategy games, um, most notable of which is AI War, uh, which is kind yeah. of a massive uh comp stomp real-time strategy game uh but just insanely just insanely ambitious and scaled uh where you are fighting an entire like massive war against this this ai that's taken over the galaxy 
And it's this weird insurgency you're launching against it. As you become more and more of a threat, the AI notices you and begins hitting you harder. So it's a really interesting game. Uh, yeah. and he's made a bunch of games like that. Uh, the Last Federation. Uh, he was working on a game that I was very excited about, um, Stars Beyond Reach. He made a weird uh, puzzle game uh, called Tidalis, which was very well regarded, uh, but but uh, didn't sell very well. But anyway, so Arkin Games is this really sort of iconoclastic studio, and uh, you know I sort of assumed they were one of those one of those like big indies that had kind of uh, you know kind of made it right that yeah, they, they, yeah. they were able to sort of operate on that level you were talking about. It was more than more than like a couple people. Uh, it had an actual team. Well, today, uh, they just posted a blog entry uh, saying that they're basically going to fire everybody uh, on Monday uh, because they are basically out of money. And they have been, uh, they've sort of been, they were struggling to get their latest game out, uh, Starward Rogue, uh, which is a, I I think it's a bullet hell roguelike uh, that they're very proud of, but it's it's just not selling. Um, So the the studio's uh, going under and the, you know, it's it's at the, on the one hand, it's it's not entirely surprising because this is a studio that made kind of weird, different games. But what really caught my eye is that it actually seems like being a studio that made weird, unusual things wasn't necessarily that bad a deal until fairly recently. And uh, there's there's one passage in this blog entry uh, I wanted to read. Um, what put the studio in trouble is they were making a 4X game called Stars Beyond Reach. It took longer than they expected. And this is what Chris Park has to say. Uh, However, all this time spent in extra development, more than double the cost of making the game. And in the meantime, our steady stream of income from our 2014 and before titles started to dry up. The Steam store changed a lot and periodic discount sales, as well as the larger store-wide sales, were no longer the huge windfalls they had once been. Our non-discount period sales were up because of the new changes, so that was good, but the promotional income was gutted, and that was our main source of income. So we started bleeding money. God. And that is, uh, you know, I've been hearing, you know, I've been hearing complaints, right, that, like, Steam has become much less friendly to developers. Yeah. But this is the first time someone sort of put a date on it. Right, that mid like mid twenty fifteen, uh, that when when the Steam store changed quite a bit. I'm not sure exactly what changed, or if if they sort of go into it a little bit. Is it you know is the idea here that that things are just more flooded than they've ever been on Steam, or there were more structural changes that actually you know specifically did damage to this type of studio. So, I mean, that's part of why I wanted to bring this up on the show. I'm hoping that uh, just as people did when we were wrong about animation uh, and (laughs) performance, I'm hoping that we can hear a little bit from, from people who are familiar with this, but you know, it was mid 2015, right? When you'll have noticed, I think the, the, the front page of your steam store will have changed and suddenly it's trying to tailor uh, steam to you more, right? This is where suddenly uh, you have to uh, rate your queue uh, and talk about what games you're interested in. And it used to be sort of, there'd be all sorts of things that would bubble up during a Steam sale that you'd be like, huh, what's that? And you'd take a chance on it. Now what you tend to see, I think, during Steam sales is um, just whatever, dis- you see the most popular games with a discount appended to them. But you don't yeah. see, hey, here's this game you've never heard of, and it's selling for $2 today. Yeah, it, it must be admitted uh, in this blog entry. There's a lot of admissions of, uh, you know, projects got out of control. Uh, They're investing a ton of time and money into Stars Beyond Reach, 
and Stars Beyond Reach is not a game that's out. They didn't yeah. complete it, uh, sure. which is, you know, if you're operating at that level, that's 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 the kind of thing that you don't have the margins uh, yeah. to, to sort of, like, develop a game and then not release it. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's not that, like, Steam destroyed this company, but at the same time, I think that context, which is that you have all these indies who were able to trust that, oh, if, you, if you'd had a couple hits, they would sort of be evergreens for you, and yeah. they yeah. would continue to pay dividends that you could plan around uh, going forward. I would I would love to know more about the, those specific changes if folks know about them and hope those folks land on their feet somehow. Yeah, I mean, I hope so too because I mean, again, like these are not the, the, the these are not the sort of games that I think receive a lot of championing uh, champions in the yeah. uh, in sort of the mainstream uh, games press. Like back, you know, six years ago when you had like Tom Chick with his own blog at Fidget, and well, we still have Tom Chick with his own blog, but you know what I mean. It was yeah, it was a pen it, it was sort of a sci-fi, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of a, a big a big platform. You had a lot of smaller outlets like uh, well, our old friends at Game Shark, uh, for yes. instance. Yes. Um, you, you'd have people like you and me reviewing these games and that mattered. Uh, you reached a small audience and that sort of helped build word of mouth. Now I, I feel like a lot of developers in this area are, are maybe a little bit like screaming into a void unless you're making something that is insanely like stream friendly, right? Something yes. which I, I think is also why you end up with so many like wacky survival games. Uh, <laughs> but if you're trying to make something that's a little more, um, a uh, single player experience, you know, really for kind of one person to absorb at once. Yeah, probably. and something, yeah. especially in this case, something that's fairly strategic. Yeah, uh, that can be that can be a harder sell, and so I, I do kind of I, I do kind of worry about these these games because they fall into that they're not the people making them are not the sort of the lone genius uh, programmers right. that are that, you know are going to you know get a lot of attention uh, by virtue of some established credibility. Uh, they are going to be people who all they can do is, is, you know, take their game around and show it to people and, and hope for the best. And that's, that's scary as hell. But then to, you know, even if you've made it to then have to worry about, well, three months after your game has come out, nobody's going to see it on steam. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, at that point you're, you're, you're just taking hammer blows to the business model. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, on that note, I think we should move right into our weekend correspondence. And again, we would love to hear more from folks who know about uh, sort of the specifics of, of what happened there with the steam, especially. Um, so I'll read our first letter. <clears throat> this one comes from Chris, known as Corex on the forums. A couple of months ago, the, dis the disappointing new Hitman movie came out and had Danielle wondering if there was a good, there was a video game movie that was actually good without any qualifiers. If you're looking for a good one, I would recommend the Prince of Persia movie. It's fun. It's an over-the-top action movie that I was surprised to find myself genuinely enjoying. There's also Street Fighter Assassin's Fist, a Capcom-sanctioned fan-made miniseries centered around Ryu and Ken's training under Sensei Guken. If you're, did I say that wrong? I might have. If you're willing to let things slide a bit, here are some other recommendations. Max Payne, Resident Evil, the first Hitman movie, and Silent Hill are all fine. That's mostly because they're competent genre movies wearing threadbare video game disguises. 
Super Mario Brothers and Double Dragon are terrible adaptations of their source materials, but are goofy and weird artifacts of early 90s cinema. And hey, Agent 47 may have been a bit of a letdown, but at least it was no Onichibara. Chris Corax on the forums. Oh, wow. Um, of this one. list. Yeah, go. Please do. Okay. Uh, not a movie, but <laughs> okay. if you actually add all the episodes together, it's basically a movie. Um, Halo Forward Unto Dawn is oh. the freaking Citizen Kane of video game <laughs> movies. Like, and that's not saying Excellent. much because, yeah, I mean, Chris just sort of hit the highlights of video game movies. So, like, it's not it's not a high bar that we have to hit here. But Forward Unto Dawn is so good and, more importantly, so much more interesting than the direction Halo ultimately went. Uh, that it is, it is absolutely, um, it, it is a must watch if you are into video game movies or even remotely familiar with Halo, uh, and interested in that lore. I might actually watch that. I, I just might. I'll put that on the list oh, for yeah. a very rainy on, day. I think it's on yeah. Netflix. It's this total, uh, it, oh, it's like this total Battlestar Galactica, uh, approach to Halo universe, uh, that's set right as the Covenant first appear. Okay. And right. it's... Yeah. A bunch of kids in this elite training academy, uh, learning to be, um, not Spartans, but, uh, you know, the elite troops of whatever the sort of fascist military. The ODST types or, yeah, okay, cool. Uh, Cool. so it's, it's this total, um, it's, it's a little bit Ender's game until it abruptly turns into this, uh, kind of horror movie, uh, as the Covenant appear and actually sort of restore the Covenant to being scary because, you know, after a couple games as Master Chief, they're really dumb or they're not scary, right? Because you're the dude in the armor, and you, just, you can just mow these guys down, even the big yeah. ones. Yeah. In this, in, in Forward Unto Dawn, like suddenly you see like what happens when normal people try to fight these things, uh, sure. and it's 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 pretty nasty. But but by and large, it's it's mostly just in- incredibly uh, well made, and I really wish that later Halo games had had maybe more of that um that t- that tone. Yeah. Uh, than the than the direction they ultimately went. Okay, I might I might actually check that out. Um, for me, I I'm actually shocked that that these two weren't mentioned because I feel like they're always the two that are mentioned in these discussions of like the least bad <laughs> video game movie, and of course those are classic uh, Mortal Kombat, the very first movie, which is a cheesy. Very, very cheesy movie, but it kind of, it's very tongue in cheek. Like going back to the movie, it knows it's a goofy 90s action movie and it, and it doesn't feel very self serious, especially, I mean, it's Mortal Kombat, so it's kind of perfect for that. And of course, again, the old chestnut of the, uh, the sort of the first Tomb Raider movie with Angelina Jolie. Again, not, not a great movie by any means, but a competent, you know, genre movie, just sort of like we're talking about the Resident Evil movie and, uh, Silent Hill. Now, for my money, uh, personally, I, I love, I also really do enjoy terrible movies. It's, you know, it's one of those nerdy things. I grew up on, you know, mystery science theater and riff tracks and such. So I, I really love, um, sort of unironically, uh, that Mario Brothers movie that you mentioned here, uh, Corax. And also here, here's a good one for you. The Doom movie. Like 2004 ish, oh, it stars the meant rock. To go back and watch that because it looks, <laughs> it's like rock in, in full scenery chewing. Mode, it is, right? it is, and that's what makes it fun. Like, and it's also Rosamund Pike, who was it? You know, she was the Bond girl that year. You know, in in Die Another Day, and uh, she last year she was in um God that movie with 
with Ben Affleck about uh, murdering the husband. And so oh, on and so on. Uh, Gone Girl. Gone Girl. Yes, exactly. So it's her in the movie as well. And oh, God, several other sort of genre actors. But it's The Rock being The Rock in Doom. And it is just, oh, my Lord, it well, is. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. And there's, there's a first person sequence, right? There Which is. is crazy because it's not remotely novel in movies. <laughs> To do exactly. that, but that movie was like, well, we have to show it's a first-person shooter game. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I really need to see that. Uh, I will actually, yeah, I will defend uh, the Max Payne movie. Uh, okay. I, I think the Max Payne movie's major problem was that it was super low budget. Sure, uh, sure. That you have, like, you have a Max Payne movie where there's literally two scenes with bullet time featured, right? <laughs> yeah. And, like, one of those scenes is just some really shoddy wire work with Mark Wahlberg. Oh, wonderful. Uh, basically, yeah. like shooting a shotgun behind him to kill a not particularly scary guy. It's 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 pretty sad because like there's yeah. little flashes of what that movie that movie could have been if there'd been a little more money behind it. Uh, but by and large, it's it's actually surprisingly watchable. Um, and there's even a little bit of pathos when uh, the 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 villain kind of reveals uh, what led him to sort of setting up. Uh, the the murder of Max Payne's family, uh, that you know, it was like, hey, there's some look at look at that. Look, there's some there's actors. There. There's some actors yeah. going to work here. It's not <laughs> the, it's not optimal circumstances, but by God, they're going to earn their paycheck. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I will defend that movie, but but by and large, man, like, I'm sorry, Chris, but even even here, I, I'm not sure I would recommend most people go see. You know, like Super Mario Brothers is real bad. Like, oh, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's real bad. I'm not even sure yeah. it's, like, good bad. I, I think it might just be awful. Yeah, um, I mean, the, the only reason I, I enjoy it on any level is sort of the production is, design is actually kind of great. And yeah. it's, it's the kind of movie that I put on. I do this often, especially if I'm going to have a really late night. I'll put on a movie that's pretty and weird or just, you know, interesting looking. I, I God, I watched some terrible awful you know half a star on netflix mermaid horror movie one night just because it was like well i'm sure there'll be something amusing no that was actually just splash and you were you were just high (laughs) maybe that's what it was (laughs) sometimes you know you just gotta you gotta do what you gotta do those late nights working at four in the morning you know you know rob (laughs) all right so our next uh our next email uh this comes to us from ryan Hello, Weekenders. When I was growing up, my mom never played video games. Now she's getting into mobile games such as 1010 and Words with Friends at Night, and she is struggling with getting to sleep the same way I used to struggle with staying up too late, taking one last turn in civilization. Do you guys have a game that keeps you up too late? And more importantly, do you have any recommendations for mobile games that might be a little less compulsive? This is not a mobile game, but when Meteos was out on the Nintendo, the original Nintendo DS, I think I lost dozens of hours of sleep just needing to play that every single night. And, and just, you know, it, it wasn't uh, it wasn't like the most compulsive game I've ever played in my life, but it was it was pretty far up there. So I, I sympathize with with your mother, Ryan. I puzzle games will do that to me. They will just drop seven is another example of just a game I could not stop playing for hours and hours because it's. Yeah, just very, very compelling. Um, I would recommend 
something uh, something that sort of lends itself to play sessions, you know, sort of chunks of play, basically, you know, something you want to play for an hour and then you feel like, okay, I, I got my time in. And that'll certainly depend on her tastes. I'm thinking right now of a game that was perfect for me in that regard, which was the uh, Steven Universe RPG that came out on iOS last year that I really enjoyed playing, you know, for half an hour, 45 minutes sort of at night. And that was great. I don't know if your mom like Steven Universe. So I don't know if I can fully recommend that, but something of that nature. And, and certainly if she's open to, you know, little Steven Universe, that's, that's a good one <laughs> for you. Yeah. And as, as far as games that keep me laid up, up late at night, it's kind of whatever is really clicking for me uh, at that time. So like, you know, I just had my, my very first destiny raid. We're actually getting Christmas oh. ornament made for it. Baby's first, uh, King's oh. fall, uh, <laughs> Christmas, <laughs> nice. Christmas, 2016, Yay. uh, baby's first King's fall. Um, <laughs> my parents are going to love it. Uh, but Yay. I mean, so I, that was a, that was like a four, four and a half hour marathon. Uh, of, of a, of a, of a game that I started playing it at 10 PM and we finished at like 2 30. Uh, so oh, that was, man. uh, you know, it, it's, it's fun to make bad decisions. I'll, I'll yeah. say that. <laughs> I mean, especially if you're, I feel like sometimes if you're in our line of work where you have to just compulsively play something for 12, 24, 30 hours, sometimes you, you get into this habit of staying up all night playing something to, you know, to write for it. So sometimes you don't feel so bad if it's like, no, I, I, you know, this is sort of for work. This is in my work, you know, general description. It'll be fine. We, I feel like we do that sometimes yeah. in this industry <laughs> for sure. But yeah, I would look into maybe possibly some RPGs, especially uh, feel like a good kind of genre where you, you get what you want out of it. A good, you know, streamlined rpg will will give that effect i i think at least it does for me awesome so our next email comes from Stuart. all right uh hi danielle and rob i'm really enjoying the podcast the discussion of games being shaped by a particular culture or point of view reminded me of one of my favorite games myth the fallen lords by bungie in that RTS game, there were no units that had to survive a battle in order for you to progress. The units all had individual names, and some would persist from one level to the next, but any member of your little army was as likely to die as any other when forces clashed or unreliable explosives deployed by your own little bomb-wielding dwarves went awry. It always struck me as being admirable and realistic that randomness and luck held such a large sway over the lives of individual units, and more than that, that it held a truth about the realities of life outside the game. On the subject of TV series that you know uh, that you know how to set up a tense confrontation, have you ever seen any justified? If so, what do you think of it? I enjoyed every season. It's from Stuart Cheshire in the UK. I think you might be <sighs> from Cheshire. Oh, sorry. Stuart is from Cheshire. Unless I'm, his name is Stuart Cheshire, which is pretty cool. But either yeah. way, Stuart, my dude. Stuart Cheshire from Cheshire. <laughs> sorry about that, my friend. Uh, um. So <laughs> I, I just got to say, like, I'm not entirely convinced that maybe Stuart is not a construct of a suppressed personality of mine that wrote this email <laughs> because this is nice. like just like Rob Zachney's id uh, in like letter form. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah, I've seen Justified, my friend. It's a masterpiece. <laughs> everyone, everyone should watch Justified because uh, that was one of the best shows of this era, and it's kind of it was one of the few shows like every everyone was like everyone sort of obsessed over like um 
you know, the Breaking Bads. Breaking Bad, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, bra- the Breaking Bads and the Mad Men of the world. And, like, Justified was a really fascinating, just really, really well-acted uh, Elmore Leonard crime epic. Uh, and it was, it just, from the first, from the first episode, uh, it just married fantastic writing, uh, tense standoffs. And I, I would argue actually, uh, the second and fourth seasons, uh, were about as good as anything, uh, that was on TV in that era. Uh, so you should, everyone should watch Justified, should at least watch, uh, season two where, where Margot Martindale, uh, is just one of the best villains, uh, and just a really sort of break breakthrough performance uh, for her uh, playing this this matriarch of this of this sort of hillbilly crime crime empire. Uh, so it's a great TV show, highly recommended. Uh, I'm amazed. I'm surprised that that myth comes up in the context of culture and point of view, because uh, I, I guess yeah, it does have its point of view is that I guess war is incredibly random and brutal. Uh, I, I I tend to think more of it as a product of people realizing physics engines were cool. Sure, um, yeah, <laughs> because that's really I think where that all stemmed from. But I, I think myth was uh, myth is one of my favorite games, uh, oh, wow. one of my favorite games of all time, and it's really criminally. Um, criminally unknown, I, sure. I think. And part of that is because Bungie went on to make Halo immediately after. And so yeah. nobody remembers that, that in between Bungie's days of making shooters for, um, for Max, Max yeah. and making Halo, they took this weird detour and made this like real time tactical game masterpiece that nobody's really matched. Not even, um, not even like the Total War games, because the Total War games are about armies. But yeah, Myth is totally about the fact that like your dwarf is throwing a Molotov cocktail, gets hit with an arrow, fumbles it, drops it at his feet. It doesn't go off because the flame goes out on the way to the ground. But then a moment later, a flaming arrow touches it and it blows up under four people. Uh, it's it's that kind of game. Uh, yeah. Highly recommended. Very cool. I had not heard of it, so that that just goes to show you how criminally unknown it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it's you can't. I don't think you can find it uh, anywhere really these days, which is too bad, right? Like it, it's it's something that should absolutely be on like GOG. Anyway, uh, our next letter comes from Saul. Hi, weekenders. I just spent a very intense five days studying and teaching a class that was heavily focused on rules compliance and paperwork. Ooh. Breaks aside, we were stuck at desks from 8.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. I'm unused to being trapped in one place like that, and I think I would have gone completely crazy if it weren't for Darkest Dungeon. Ironic, (laughs) given the game's theme. My play even had an appropriate arc. I lost a whole lot of high-level characters to bosses on day one, followed it up with three days of gradually grinding my way back to roughly where I had been, and finally achieved a thrilling victory over one of said bosses in the final hour of class. Nice. My question to you is this. Have you ever had an experience where playing a game in conjunction with another experience or activity has ended up improving both the game and that other experience, uh, especially where that other experience was negative on some level? This happened very recently for me. Um, I mentioned in an earlier podcast that I enjoyed playing Forza and zoning out and sort of listening to the audiobook versions of my um, my EMT class materials. I'm retraining to be an EMT right now. Uh, Just this past week, I had an exam in my EMT class, and I was sort of spending a lot of time studying for it, tons of time studying for it uh, with audiobooks, and also I would take breaks for reading, but I was playing through Paper Mario, um, (laughs) or sorry, excuse me, Mario and Luigi Paper Jam, a Paper Mario 
game, you know. And I, I'm at the point where I'm seriously associating uh, Mario's, you know, jump attack with uh, sort of the signs and symptoms of a person going into shock. Like I, when I study like this, it's so completely hilarious to me that, that I make these associations that are just like, okay, this is, you know, it, these are both, I guess, relatively positive things because I, I enjoy uh, my medical training, but it's also, you know, certainly uh, blood and guts and gross things. So it's not wholly positive. And then of course I'm playing a game for review, so I'm getting work done. It's it's a funny thing. And I, and I seriously will always associate certain, you know, we have a lot of mnemonics and things like that in, in sort of low level medical training like I have. And it's very, very much associating, you know, goofy little attacks with, with some serious trauma concepts. It's a, it's a good time. I, I, I also do this with, um, you know, anything I kind of need to get done and also need to play a game at the same time. I like I, I like a good multitask. And there are a lot of um, even foods that I will associate with certain games. There, there's certain, <laughs> this will sound really weird, but this is two positive experiences, I guess. I associate eating a certain <laughs> Safeway brand cinnamon bun with playing Bloodborne because I, I sort of went through an obsession with that type of food. Like I would get it every time and when I lived in San Francisco and I would eat a ton of them and then play Bloodborne and my hands would be sticky and I'd be, you know, I'd have a sugar rush and I was ready to go beat that boss. It's weird, but these associations happen. I guess. You you washed your hands before like playing the game, though, right? I mean, I did, like, but I still had that like cinnamon oh, sugary kind of oh, buzz gross. about me. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah. Uh, I, I think for me, and I, I'm not sure I brought this up on the podcast before. Uh, I know that Danielle and I have talked about it. Summer of 2001, I tore my ACL during football practice. Oh yeah, and uh, so they uh, so. By like that August, I underwent uh, the the surgery for uh, ACL repair. The protocol has changed uh, since then, but when I underwent that surgery, um, what they were really paranoid about is that your leg would stiffen up uh, if you weren't constantly exercising it. Uh, so what they would do is they'd put a machine uh, under your leg uh, that ran basically from your foot uh, all the way up to your butt, and yeah. it would just bend your knee uh, nonstop, just mechanically. Uh, so the scar tissue couldn't, uh, couldn't like harden basically, I guess uh, you didn't, they didn't want to worry about that sort of adhesion uh, that sometimes happens yeah, uh, with yeah. scar tissue. And uh, so it would just go all the time, except after surgery, uh, that was just hellaciously painful because uh, oh, it's constantly like pulling on the scars. And it, so my, so nonstop, my leg just feels like it's on freaking fire. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a terrible feeling. Uh, and that's what I'm doing. Uh, that's, that's how I am when I'm at home. That's what I'm doing, uh, at night, uh, when I can barely sleep. Um, and that's what was going on, uh, when I started playing Final Fantasy nine, <laughs> uh, and Final Fantasy nine, you know, it's weird. I feel like there's, you know, everyone, I guess Final Fantasy seven is the, is the great one. Uh, Final Fantasy VIII is the one that a lot of people really love, and then Final the Fantasy really X. anime one, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the really anime one that's, <laughs> that's yeah, kind of I guess that's, that's a net. that's a hard fight, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, I started playing Final Fantasy IX, and you know, it was it was it was a nice way. The nice thing about like Final Fantasy games is they just wipe out huge chunks of time. And that was a good time for it to come up. But then it started really to become important to me uh, when, uh, you know, I was still in the midst of recovering from the surgeon. I was still in a lot of pain. 
when uh when when the September 11th attacks happened. Oh yeah. And so I was sort of stuck in my room uh and couldn't do anything. Like I was totally dependent on other people and that wasn't so bad during the day. Uh but at night, you know, my parents are going to bed. Uh I don't even have my dogs with me. Uh, because oh. they're, you know, the, they, they can't be, the machine's freaking them out. They wouldn't leave me alone. So they, they got to go sleep with my parents. So I'm completely <laughs> alone, uh, in my room. And all I'm getting, like, my TV is only picking up, uh, you know, it's, it's only picking up the network channels, which at that point there was no normal programming. Uh, there yeah. was only, there was only terrorist attack coverage. And so I would say for like three or four days, any time, like it's the middle of the night, I'm completely alone. And I turn on the TV, and all I'd see was the same like twenty or thirty like horrific clips of video being replayed over and over again. And oh, when God. the news broadcast would end, uh, they would just repeat them. Uh, so because nobody was working at two in the morning, so they just they just repeat the exact same news broadcast you just God. saw. Yeah. Uh, and so you just so you could just like have this stuff just burned into your mind. Uh, and so the only thing to give me relief from that was uh, Final Fantasy IX, and it became like that. That game is associated with this like feeling of peace and well-being. That game was an escape, like few others have been, yeah. because one, the world was a horror show and depressing as hell, and uh, it was just a really awful, awful time to be like considering what was going on in the world. Sure. And then the other fact was my leg just hurt like hell 24 <laughs> seven. Um, and so I am really attached to final fantasy nine. Uh, even though, you know, I go back to it and I'm like, this is, <laughs> this is some silly stuff. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's the one where your main character has a little tail. It's the, it's, yeah. it's the, it's basically the, 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 the final fantasy for, uh, like other kin. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's yeah. kind of what that game is. Uh, yeah. but to me, it's this completely wonderful experience. Cause it was like going, going to Narnia when I was playing that game, right? Like, yeah. well, it's, it's shitty out here. How are, how are things going for Zidane and Dagger? Uh, and it turns out things were, things were going all right there. And, uh, you know, just get like, get finding, like taking my little, my little wizard guy and getting him to find his own kind, give him a family, uh, making things right with all these little characters and solving their, solving their problems. Um, that was incredibly satisfying and, and really made that game, uh, kind of a, a magical place, uh, for me. So that's, that's my, uh, negative experience uh, making a game better because uh, I have never clicked with a Final Fantasy really before or after the way I clicked with uh, Final Fantasy IX. Oh, that is that is a really heartwarming story, Rob. I really really liked that. Can you imagine how bad that story would be though if it had been Final Fantasy X? Like, <laughs> just imagine oh man and my only companion during the worst time the worst was time was T yeah Titus oh god <laughs> And his that ridiculous laugh. whatever blitzball. Oh, that that pads. rigged that rigged shitty game. He's the greatest <laughs> blitzball player in the world. Terrible, terrible at it. <laughs> oh my god. Well, on that note, I think we should probably talk about our weekend project. So, Rob, are you watching or reading or experiencing anything especially cool lately? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, this week I just started watching The Magicians, uh, oh, which nice. just premiered on Sci-Fi. 
and sort of in keeping with their earlier discussion, uh, sci-fi continues to turn into a pretty decent uh, TV network. Uh, I'm not awesome. gonna, yeah. I'm not gonna talk too much about the magicians because it's it's still very early. Um, it's more succeeding on how attractive its premise is rather than how good the individual episodes are. Uh, but the magicians is very much uh, Harry Potter grows up, uh, gets high, and goes to grad school. <laughs> and that is like yeah. that is the show. Like it's a bunch of like privileged New Yorkers uh realizing that magic is real. Um and there is sort of a Harvard or Yale equivalent of magic uh in upstate New York that is very selective and takes only the best uh potential magicians. And so naturally our hero, who was always kind of out of place in the world is whisked away to become a magician uh, at Break Bill's uh, university. Meanwhile, his friend, who was sort of the overachiever throughout their youth and, uh, you know, had her whole future laid out for her, she is actually rejected uh, from from the Magical Wizard University and ends up hooking up with some uh, sketchy uh, rogue magicians uh, who are teaching her the 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 magician equivalent of street smarts? I got. Oh yeah. I guess. Yeah. But you know the <laughs> thing is, I it's 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 a cool premise, and it actually just it, it works. It's just it's a it is a it is a post grad like college drama, uh, but everyone's a magician, and so you've got the so far you got a lot of stock characters. You got the perennially pissed off overachiever um, yep. who's just wound wound tight to the breaking point after years of like. Take Hermione Granger. Yeah. Keep like make her like maintain that routine for like fifteen more years. <laughs> yeah. And what do you get? You get a pretty neurotic, pissed off person. Yeah. Um. You've got the uh. You know. You you you've got the uh. Sort of <laughs> sort of vaguely nihilistic gay guy. Uh, yep. Who just doesn't give a damn about anything, but has a heart <laughs> of gold and basically doesn't take anything seriously. And whenever you run into real trouble, will always be the person who who makes you feel better about the whole thing. Uh, yeah. So it's a lot of these stock characters. But you know what? I got too old for Harry Potter. Here's the magicians. Thank God. Nice. I, that sounds really awesome. I actually really loved the book. Um, I read it right when it came out. So it was a few years ago and it sounds like they've made some significant changes for the better <laughs> a little bit, uh, maybe with more focus on sort of the, you know, that girl that was the overachiever, uh, because she, if I remember correctly, she was a pretty minor character, uh, at least in most of the books. In so. the second book, I think it oh, focuses okay. a lot on her. So yeah, what, apparently what they've done is they took the, the first two books. I don't yeah. know how many books there are, but I gather they've sort of slammed them together, which is sure, also sure. why it ends up being a loose adaptation because at this point, like from, from, from the word go, this series mm. is completely the kind of, off the chronology of of the books because okay, of the decision. Cool. But yeah. it's a smart decision because then you have you don't have a standard chosen one narrative. You've got one person who might be the chosen one and then you got someone else who is quite specifically not chosen. Um so what I want to talk about this week is a documentary that I saw recently, uh, which I really, really quite enjoyed and found fascinating, uh, called Best of Enemies. And this is a documentary about uh in 1968, the presidential um uh, campaigns, uh, both, you know, sort of the news, the news channels at the time were looking for ways to boost their ratings during the sort of presidential campaigns, uh, of the time. And they hired Gore Vidal, uh, super liberal gay dude in the sixties was out in the sixties, you know, really just about as, as, as liberal as it gets. And 
William F. Buckley, a, a super, super conservative guy. And they basically just sort of went at it in these televised interviews, uh, sort of during, during, you know, sort of the, the background was, was this, you know, sort of very life changing, uh, presidential campaign. Fascinating documentary about sort of the role of media and, and what the news was and how the news was a very, very almost serious and very almost sort of a stolid foundation. It was just sort of older white men talking about the important things, you know, think Walter Cronkite and the yeah. sort of very, very distinguished sort of presence that that uh, network news had. And this right here in this moment, you can pinpoint, you know, just this moment in 1968 is where we get what news would become. People shouting at each other, basically. Hmm. People who hate each other and are shouting at each other. They're shouting talking points at each other. Um, it's so fascinating to me because there are so few times that we can really pinpoint when something major changed. You know, I, I, certainly you can say, you know, the birth of the internet was X, Y, and Z and, and these certain specific things. But there are so few of those in, in a cultural context that you can just say, okay, this is exactly why this is the way it is now. And this is one of those times. And I, I found it fascinating. And of course, it's entertaining to watch because it really is two just incredibly opposed people screaming at each other. And they're both very intelligent and well-spoken. This is not something we see on, you know, network news anymore necessarily. But these are two really intelligent people who who absolutely hate each other and are just scoring points. And there is one point, it's very, very famous, uh, this was something I knew about before I watched the documentary. And, you know, when I watched it and I saw it there, I was like, oh, that's what that's from, you know, one of those moments. But, um, you know, William F. Buckley gets really mad at one point and, yeah. and basically threatens Gore Vidal saying, oh, yeah, yeah, punch that's... you in the face, you yeah. queer. You know, he says something very just he, he calls him queer, which was not a nice word in the 60s. You know, that was. Uh, that was the equivalent of using the sort of the F word towards a, a gay man, basically, at the time, you know, on TV, oh my God, and, and threatens violence against him and runs off, you know, it's this very sort of heated moment. And it's like, this this is what the news would become, you know, this right here at this at this very moment. Fascinating and very, very well worth watching. I think it's on Netflix instant, so easy to to check out. But uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, had a yeah. line about, about Buckley that... Um, because you know he debated James Baldwin uh, at Cambridge yes. University, yeah. And if you watch that video on on YouTube, uh, Baldwin just crushes him because uh, Baldwin and 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 Coates' point is that you know Baldwin was a, was an actual intellectual, and yeah. Buckley is someone who played one on TV, right? And I, I think that's a pretty decent summary <laughs> yep. of uh, what William F. Buckley uh, actually was. But it's an interesting. That's an, it's interesting to sort of locate him in that context where it's, yeah, you not only have, um, two people like shouting at each other on TV and the, boy, that's good television. Yeah. Uh, but also you have this illusion, uh, that A, these are people who should be qualified to actually speak to any of these issues <laughs> and, uh, B, that somehow, uh, they're, you know, that they must be given sort of equal weight. Uh, yes. that, they, that they are actually the heavyweights who who deserve to be in the room. And when you like watch Buckley go up against Baldwin at Cambridge, he doesn't belong in that room. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's, yeah. he's, he's completely outclassed. And it's, it's, it's actually kind of an awkward video uh, to watch because Buckley goes up there after Baldwin and you're waiting for something and it, <laughs> it, it doesn't show up. That, that is a really good way of putting it. And it, it's sort of the, the whole birth of pundits as opposed to actual experts. It's, 
God, it's so depressing. <laughs> you know, watching that documentary is so depressing uh, because it's it's like, oh God, this is where we are now. You know, it's yeah, uh, but depressing in a, in a fascinating way. So I would totally recommend it, nonetheless. Cool, awesome. So. I think with that, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. So if you're enjoying this show, please do tell your friends, your enemies, everybody you know. Uh, well, maybe not your enemies. Your unless, frenemies, you know, though, certainly. Yeah, your get frenemies the, get are those perfect. frenemies on here. Yeah, get all your frenemies in this network. It's perfect. Please, please tell folks that you know. Please spread the word. And please do rate us on iTunes. It helps us out so, so much. And we really appreciate you being here and listening. Um, so I'll go on. Uh, you can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. And remember, right after this message, we are actually going to be doing a Fargo season two spoiler uh, discussion. So you can you can listen for that as well. But right. we're going to close things up here just so, you know, folks who don't want the spoiler discussion can, uh, can you know, turn off your earbuds at this point. But from here, you've got about 20 or 30 seconds That's to right. turn that stuff off because got some time. we are, we are going to be diving into uh, what we thought of Fargo Season 2. All the way. Awesome. So for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Okay, I think they're gone, Rob. I think the yeah. the people <laughs> who don't want to hear about Fargo, I think they're they're gone by now, right? Certainly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't trust them. Oh, well, put on your put on your thick earmuffs, friends, if you don't want to hear about <laughs> Fargo season two, because we're gonna get into it right now, right now. So, Rob, I you know it's been a it's been a couple weeks since I watched the show. Yeah. And at the time I was very I was very ambivalent about it. I thought, you know, it was a quality production, certainly. It was interesting. It did some weird and interesting things. Uh but I it was rubbing me the wrong way. And uh you know, we we talked about that a little bit already. Now that I've had a couple of weeks away from it, I think I kind of hated it. Oh, wow. <laughs> Actually. Yeah, I you know, I I've gone kind of pretty negative uh, on it at this point. Um, I think I liked season one better. And, you know, I didn't think season one was uh, the best thing I've ever watched, but I, I enjoyed it a little bit more. But yeah, I, I I just have a bad taste in my mouth when I think about Fargo season two. Oh man, there's going to be a lot of me will actually you. Oh, here, here we go. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, I would say a, pro- a thing I was very uncomfortable with throughout season two we talked about this before. Yeah. Season two sometimes feels like a pastiche of other elements. Yeah. Uh, it, it feels like, oh, you've seen a bunch of Cohen Brothers movies and we're going to throw a lot of references at you. Uh, but also we are going to be uh, a lot more easily digestible than Fargo season one. Uh, it's going to be less weird. It's going to be focused less on uh, the, the crimes of this one really idiosyncratic character <laughs> surrounded by weirdos, uh, kind of. And this is much more of a – it's very much more a, a traditional crime story with this uh, sort of small-town twist. But, it, you know, this is – you know, the, the the rivalries here are not that different from the stuff you find in The Godfather. 
uh, for instance, which I sure. think sort of detracted a little bit from the Fargo-ishness of it. Uh, but the the issue is I, I, I still love that kind of story. And I, I, I think it was – I liked so many of the performances and uh, – you know, characters in this story that I, I just, I didn't care. It was so, it was so stylishly done. Sure. I mean, I, I respect that. I completely do. And I just think I bounced off because I couldn't find a character that I liked or really cared about. Again, aside from, you know, Ron Swanson as an ACLU lawyer, that was pretty cool. I I did really like Nick Offerman in the you know, sort of ridiculous drunk attorney who who knows everything about civil liberties. That was that was that was fun. Um, my God, I just I I hated the the sort of central couple so much. I just want every time something bad was happening to them, I I just wanted to be like, just put them out of their misery. Someone, please, just one of these these people with guns, please, just just both of them. I just I don't want oh. to hear them anymore. <laughs> I mean, and it was it was really it was really bad because you know I I've since come around a little bit on sort of the Mike Milligan situation um but I really do feel like Peggy was sort of set up to be a straw man about feminism is, okay. is crappy and and that really just turned yeah. me off so completely See yeah. I don't uh, see I don't I don't get that I I started to wonder about that a little bit especially at the very end uh yeah. because she ends up trying to express what she why she did what she did uh, yeah. Which is that that Peggy kind of at the very from the very first episode makes a series of increasingly unhinged decisions uh, that set all these things in motion and lead to complete disaster. Okay, and at the end she's trying to explain why she made these decisions and she ends up giving this kind of babbling speech yeah. that is like a. That is vaguely feminist, but it's unable to articulate its point of view. It's feminism by way of someone who doesn't really get it. Absolutely, yes. And I don't think necessarily, like, I don't think she is set up as some sort of representative of feminism or what feminism has done to women. I think Peggy exists as someone who... Some of these ideas are starting to arrive too late for her, right? Yeah. That she is someone who, whose decisions have been governed by this, these expectations that have been on someone like her, right? She would get a job at the beauty beauty parlor. Yeah. She would marry the the nice, you know, the nice boring guy from town. Basically, <laughs> he doesn't want much out of life except his butcher shop and a whole mess of kids. Yeah, and. Uh, and when Peggy starts to get this idea that there has to be more to life than this, um, she she gets this around the same like it like I I feel like where where Peggy goes wrong is that she has this feeling uh, that you I guess you could call feminism, but it's but it's not though, right? It's just that it's the root of feminism. It's this awareness that no, you're you're your own person and you deserve to live life. On your terms, right? right. That, She's that, grasping towards it, basically. Yeah. Sort of fumbling towards that. Right. But it's arriving too late. And what she's what she ends up grabbing isn't feminism. What she ends up grabbing is a whole lot of 1970s self-actualization snake oil. <laughs> yeah, sure. And I think that's kind of what this, like, 
I, I feel I, I feel like that's kind of what this what what that character is trying to bring out is that this is there were these there was this feeling of of something being wrong in 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 the world in in your life uh, around this time. There's the sort of well the the show opens with Carter's malaise spe- speech, right? Yeah, yeah. And what do you know? Like Peggy's in the middle of her own very deep malaise, and the way she thinks the way out of it for her is sort of this really entitled uh you know self-help philosophy. <laughs> yeah. I I mean that's I'm not going to argue that that she's uh, some kind of uh you know absolute or, or good character or bad character or anything of that nature. For me what it came down to was in that last scene. Clearly as a viewer, I am supposed to be sympathetic to the cop character. I'm supposed, you know, he's he's making so much sense. This is, you know, why would you do that, Peggy? You know, that sort of thing. What what ridiculous things you've done. And yes, her speech is babbling and it's not very coherent and it's not very well reasoned by any means. But I, I have a really hard time sympathizing with the cop who's bringing this woman in who is clearly she's trying to get it. She she wants not to just be the little housewife. She wants to be something more. She's doing it wrong, of course, completely. I I will concede that, but I just well, I just couldn't. I but, I was like, "You know what? I'm always I'm always going to be on her side because I agree with what she's trying to get at, basically." Yeah, except I I think like that that scene it, I don't think you are supposed to be on his side because his side is not a conversation. They give two speeches that that pass like ships in the night. She yeah, gives yeah. she gives her speech and it's not I don't think you have to be on her side. And I I certainly didn't feel that way cuz at that point like Pe- Peggy's a really selfish and and, and awful person uh, throughout yeah, a lot sure. of the series, um, yeah. and this is you know this is this is why like she like th- this is why like all these things have arrived too late for her, and, and so she sort of gets around them by uh, by deceit uh, basically throughout the around, uh, throughout the series. But no, she gives her speech, and then uh, the the cop uh, Lou Salverson yeah. uh, just says people died, uh, Peggy. But and it's clear he hasn't heard her. He hasn't heard her at all. And he gives his speech, which is ironically it, it ties into a uh, a movie I I recommended recently on the podcast, uh, Last Days in Vietnam. He tells the story of this chopper trying to land on this uh, frigate uh, he was he was serving on during Vietnam, and about how it was this guy who'd taken his family out of Vietnam uh, on the stolen helicopter. And he talks about how it's sort of, it's a man's duty and a man's privilege to sort of look after and take care of his family. And it's this really like, this is how he conceives of the world. Right. Yeah. But we just spent like 10 episodes showing that's not really the world that <laughs> that's not really the world we live in. <laughs> and then that the last yeah. episode ends with Ted Danson's character talking about what he had identi- what he sees as the tragedy of, of our time the thing that he wants to somehow find a way past is that people can't understand each other and we don't have the same language. We can't articulate what we feel to each other. And that's why bad things happen in the world. And I I think, I think those three speeches are all related. I think they're all of a piece. Uh, and, And so I kind of like, it is, it is an ending that I, I, I don't fully know what to make of, uh, but, but I don't think it's, I don't think Peggy's as villainized uh, as 
and I don't think it's 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 it, that she represents a brand of feminism that's getting villainized. I think it's I think it's something else. It just felt to me in this context of a show that is so stylized and every character is sort of playing a type, even if even if the you know sort of decisions to cast people against type don't entirely go towards that. It just felt in such a stylized presentation that she is, well, she's the only one saying anything relatively feminist. And she's also, you know, I'll just say she's, you know, presented as a really off, off hinge, selfish kind of a villain, you know, sort of a villain in the piece, not, not sort of a traditional villain, but she's kind of a villain. She, you know, does a lot of really terrible things. It feels like there is an association there. And maybe maybe I'm seeing that because I'm certainly attuned to seeing that. And, you know, I'll be sensitive to that sort of those connotations. That's certainly true. But I did I did get a sense that, yeah, there there was an association there with feminism equals crazy bitch a little bit, a little mm. bit, you know. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, there there is that. On the other hand, you also have like one of the core one of the pivotal moments for the Gerhards that dooms them. Is that so? The, the so the Gerhards are the the family, the the local uh, old school crime family. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in, up in Fargo, um, the Gerhards, there the the patriarch of the family has just had a massive stroke, and it falls to the kids to sort of decide who's going to uh, take over, and immediately uh, one of them says, "Well, why doesn't why doesn't mom?" Why doesn't the wife of the patriarch, who is basically, you know, the co-executive head of the organization, why doesn't she just take over? And everyone's actually on board with this, except for Dodd, uh, the character. Sort of alpha male. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, I think throughout this series, actually, there's a lot of people sort of ignoring or uh, trying to steamroll women. Yeah. And I think the moment that dooms the Gerhards is everyone is cool with it. Everyone is fine with following mom's cues because she knows what's she knows what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Except Dodd screws it all up because he is entitled to run the family crime business because well, he's the eldest. Yeah. The oldest male. The eldest and he's son. also yeah. he's also a just complete misogynist as well. Like which oh, we find out you know, sort of later on that he you know, he thinks the devil is a woman and all women are evil and all this other stuff. So yeah, it, it I, I I do see that. And and I actually for for all of its faults, I I sort of uh, that one character, the sort of matriarch of the Gerhards, was you know if if I liked anybody other than you know Nick Offerman, it was probably her, basically. And Molly, because you know I I liked Molly because I knew what she would become. I knew Molly would be a yeah. pretty awesome, competent cop later in life. So she she was all right, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, okay. Uh, that was cool. I will totally give you that. Well, um, like, I just, I, I just love like all the Dakotas. A lot of these characters get like, yeah. What did you, what do you think of the ending? Mike Milligan got because I, I thought it was, it was really brilliant that like the coolest and most competent of the criminals. Uh, I kept waiting for things to blow up in his face, but they never really did, uh, except in this really weird and surprising way. Yeah. I, I I quite enjoyed that, not with a bang, but with a whimper, and the the worst whimper of all, you know, becoming a sales associate. <laughs> Basically, that was that was his ending. Um, yeah, I liked I liked a, that scene a lot because of of what it said. You know, it was very very clearly a sort of uh, 
and I, the idea of evil, the worst evil being mundane and, and being sort of boring. And, and that's where the worst things in this world happen are from the, you know, the paper pushers who don't consider people human beings. That was cool. That was another cool thing. And, and like I said, I've come around a little bit on Mike Milligan. He really, the character really rubbed me the wrong way when we were first watching the show. It, it felt to me sort of vaguely racist. And, I, and I've come around on it. I've, I've read a few things about sort of the, you know, the decisions that they made and you know, different different ways in which, you know, of course, how articulate he was and how, how he's probably the smartest person in this entire show. That 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 alleviated a lot of that for me. And, and I softened as well on sort of finding that performance fun as opposed to just being Ugh, what is this? You know, I, that was sort of my initial reaction, and I softened a bit on that as well. Yeah, I just thought it was really, I, I really like the poignancy of that ending. Like, and yeah. he was a bad guy. Like, he deserved oh, to have yeah, a bad a, ending. He, he sucked, yeah. But <laughs> sure. I love that it was kind of the most appropriate ending for him because he's basically damned to push paper. And yet, yes. also, this is what he's being told is this is the future of crime. It's not, you know, it's not going to be you out there now in the field uh, being a badass gangster. Um, this is like crime now and, and, and crime through the 80s, through, through, through modern times. Uh, the most successful criminals are going to be people who are doing it, you know, almost all completely legally, right? Yeah. It's going to be people in offices moving money around. Yes. Insurance companies and such. Yeah. <laughs> it gave me such a feeling of like... Oh God! This this should and could just be like a, a you know evil medical insurance company yeah. kind of thing. Like that's exact. That's where my brain went immediately. Was like, oh, who can we cut out of life saving care? You know that sort of thing. Where did you uh, come out with Hanzi, uh, the the uh, the Indian gunman character? That's how I felt the most complicated about Hanzi because I liked Hanzi. I, I I I was sort of rooting for him, and I liked his moment where he. He decided, like, I'm done with your your crappy infantilizing and racism and, you know, and, and turned against Dodd because, of course, anybody who was going to turn against Dodd, I would have cheered for. <laughs> but but he also, you know, they were certainly sort of using some of the mystical person of color sort of stereotypes uh, pretty heavily uh, with that character. It was It was kind of the whole crux of his character was that he is a mystery that nobody really knows what goes on in his mind and what his interior life actually is other than you know he he obviously is upset by a lot of the terrible things people do to him um so yeah i i don't i don't know i'm still very ambivalent about sort of the hanzi situation personally yeah that's where i came out too uh i thought i think what i liked about it was largely uh the fact that zon mclarnan did a lot with a character that maybe didn't give a, give him a whole lot. Sure, sure. Um it helps that Zon McLarnan is like a you know, a strong silent Native American character straight from from central casting, right? Yeah. Like yeah. you know, just it's just this really like um the, the a face of these really dramatic sharp features, uh you know, gorgeous long black flowing hair. Yeah. Uh but we're, like I really liked that episode where he basically snaps. Uh, yeah, me too. Where, yeah. but it's it's really silly, right? Because like all, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, everywhere this character goes, um, everyone is super racist against uh, you know Indians. Ever and it's like okay, that racism exists, but it's like cartoonish almost, right? Everyone he encounters oh, yeah, it was extreme. Like, yeah, it was yeah. very extreme. 
everyone he encounters in this episode is basically like, oh, look, it's an engine. Let's screw with him. Basically, yeah. And yeah. it's like, okay, fine. But this it sets up, I think, what is a pretty cool moment, which is the moment where he just snaps and just without a word goes to his truck, gets a gun, mm-hmm. and just starts cleaning house. Yes. Um, and just like just dis- totally dispassionately, ruthlessly, he walks into the bar, right? And he says, I just wanted a drink and then yeah. guns on the bar. It's great stuff. Uh, but uh, w- what really sold it for me was when he asks uh, Peggy to cut his hair. Yeah. And again, like people trying to articulate something. He almost says like, what is he? He's like, I- I'm just I- I'm just tired of this life where he starts to say that. But like, yeah. he's not just cutting his hair, right? He just wants some other identity he wants to not be the indian yeah. uh for for a moment and that transformation is denied him and sort of his course is set uh fr- from then on but i thought it was a really beautifully done moment it was a beautifully acted moment uh but in the end you're right like the show kind of throws up its hands and it's like yep yeah, who knows why hansi did anything <laughs> and yeah. also um you know, and and also the only thing we know about him in the end is that he got tired of being like sort of pigeonholed as, uh, you know, as an Indian, and wished that he could have just sort of shed that identity, which is yeah. which is a, is a cool beat, but it doesn't sort of undo the fact that we don't know anything else about him but that identity, and yeah. maybe that's partly the point. Nobody ever asks him, and that's why nobody ever saw Hanzi coming. Uh, but yeah. So I'm going to ask you uh, an obvious question now. Yeah. Um, oh. What did you th- What did you think of the UFO appearance? The little X Files moment there in the middle of a dramatic gun battle at uh, towards the end of the show. I mean, the weird thing. <laughs> okay, so they had at least told us in advance now that the UFOs weren't fake. Like, it's in All the right. first episode, but I thought maybe that was just a weird, like, hallucination by the character. Mm-hmm. But by the time, like, it really appears, like, we're pretty certain that, yeah, UFOs are real. Its appearance in the middle of what is a pretty, like, pretty rip-roaring gun battle. Like, you know, top marks, uh, Fargo, for just yeah. having a complete uh, bloodbath uh, at, the, at the end of the season. Uh... It's a weird thing. What like yeah. what does what does the UFO mean? Like okay, fine. Like it's it's this notion that I guess it's it's like as close as we get to like the existence and unknowable nature of God, right? That like it is like fundamentally these people are all watched by this alien omnipotent intelligence. Uh okay. <laughs> but also, at a pivotal scene, a UFO distracts a character long enough for another character to shoot him in the head. Yeah. It's- uh, I don't know how I feel in the end. <laughs> Wasn't my favorite. <laughs> and this is coming from the sci-fi nerd who, you know, watches, you know, the evil mermaid movies at late at night. So it's <laughs> it's not that I, I love weird. Weird is, I, I adore weird. I enjoy weird. This just felt like a complete absolute what's the weirdest goofiest thing we could possibly do well let's do it like for its own sake almost it just doesn't feel like it ties in yes of course they telegraphed this but 
I don't know if they were going for some big revelation there or just such a, a moment of, of hilarity in the midst of a you know, I mean, it bloodbath. Does, it, it does set up the, the fantastic, <laughs> you know, exit scene from Peggy and Ed uh, where, yes. where he's like, he's like, honey, honey. And she's like, yeah, it's a UFO, sweetie. We got to go. Yeah, that was that was cool. That was cool. That was Peggy's best moment, I think, in the oh, whole show. Um, no, I mean, I I really liked her uh, torturing Dodd um, just in that, that sort enjoyable. of weirdly perky uh, Minnesotan way that she yeah. just, you know, she doesn't like the way he's talking to her. So right. she uh, she stabs him. And you'll eat my beans. Yeah, that's, that's um, perfect. Yeah, that was good. That was a but, good moment. Yeah, the UFO is a moment I rolled with, but I don't like, yeah, I, I'm still not sure whether that entire element... Uh, was was necessarily well advised. It was kind of a little bit too cute. Like, look, there are themes here. Pay attention. Yeah, it I actually felt that way. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go for, go for it. I was going to say I felt the same general way of yeah, there are themes with the sort of ending scene with uh, you know Lou Dobbs and Ted Danson's character. And, you know the the cops and family about you know he was making a new language that felt so completely yep. on the nose for the theme of the show. You know because. As you were saying earlier, one of the the coolest things about the show is that, you know, it everything in it does tie into the theme of miscommunication is the root of all of this yeah. mess, basically. And then it's kind of like, and we're ending with a scene that explains well, it all. You know, it's a little... Even, mm. even then, he's still wrong, right? And that's what I kind of liked about it, is that he's wrong, because a lot of the issues in this show is that, yeah, some of them were people couldn't communicate. Like Ed, Like, Ed and Peggy were never able to talk about, like... They never really understood their differences, right? Until yeah. it was uh, until it was too late. Uh, but at the same time, I think like Mike Milligan's character, a lot of the interactions he has with people, he absolutely understands where people are coming from. Sure. You know, and and they understand him. Uh, and the issue isn't that there's miscommunication. The issue is that people want things that are incompatible. Sure. And push comes to shove, some of them will, will destroy each other. Uh, but I, I gotta say, one of my favorite scenes. Um, how, what did you think of um, of Carl Weathers' finest hour uh, outside that jail? That was that was great. That was that was fantastic. Like I said, my, certainly my favorite character in the entire show was was him and his his manner and his ways. And he just reminded me so much of a sort of cowboy and intoxicated version of all the ACLU lawyers I used yeah. to work with. You know, just the Blah, 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 you know, very smart and blustering and righteous and, you know, a little tongue in cheek at the same time, sort of knowing that you're blustering. It was just so enjoyable for me to kind of see that character and watch him have his truest moment, his his most righteous moment of righteous moments right there. That was that was a lot of fun. And I love Nick Offerman in that role. My God, that was out of all the casting decisions for this show. That was the best, I think, personally. Yeah, I mean, I think they were. I think a lot of them were pretty spot on. I, I, like credit also in the scene, uh, the person he shared it with, uh, the guy playing Bear Gerhardt, yeah, uh, Angus Sampson, who is like clearly cast, and the character is clearly meant to look like kind of the dumb like lummox of the family, right? I mean, he and he looks like an actual bear, not the you know fun yeah. gay man kind, but like a, a a bear, the animal, a brown bear, you know? Yeah, and he's not not a cuddly bear. Uh, yes, yeah. right. <laughs> and so he's he's like a really threatening, scary figure, uh, but ends up being one of the more complicated and uh, humane of the Gerhards. Yes. Uh, until eventually he 
also hits his breaking point, uh, which comes shortly after that moment. But I loved, I loved that moment where, you know, he's staring down Nick, Nick Offerman and Offerman's like, I need you to understand you are making this worse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, backs him off just by making that appeal to, you know, trust, you know, trust the system, trust, like, I'll take care of your son. I'm a lawyer, but you've got to go. Yeah. Well, and, and Bear, Bear's the smartest Gerhardt also because he, he, he wants the most for his son. As You know, it's, yep. it's, there's a lot of themes going on here about parenting, of course, you know, the crappiest parents in this show versus the best parents. And Bear sort of shows what side he's on when he, you know, he wants his son to be a lawyer. He wants him to go to school. He wants him to be, you know, smart and, and make moves in the world that aren't necessarily just busting heads like his brother you know, yep. Dob. And of course, Dodd is, is the worst by a country mile parent in the entire show. Yeah. Just and if controls and abuses. Yeah, exactly. And, and he thinks that's what it is to be a man is to control and abuse basically. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot going on with those Gerhards. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it, I think for me, I, I'd loved the show cause I loved so many individual moments in it. Uh, but I do think it runs into trouble. Like the fact that like we, we've been sitting here talking about, and I'm still not sure what Peggy's deal really is. Yeah. <laughs> like, cause I definitely had that uneasy feeling at, like yeah. during her speech, like, wait, is, is she just, uh, a funhouse mirror version of like a feminist? Like what's, what's going on here? Yeah. The fact I still don't know what a lot of those, like, I have a lot of questions about what a lot of this ultimately meant. Um, sure. And not necessarily always in a good way, right? Sometimes it feels like the resolution of things made them almost inherently meaningless. Yeah, yeah. In some ways, I feel like I, I also did certainly enjoy many moments in this show and some of the characters, as I've said. But yeah, it, it did not come together for me in the way that I think it was meant to, or or you know, the way it did for probably most people who saw it. I feel like it is, you know, and it deserves some critical acclaim certainly for what it does well. Uh, but for me, yeah, just there are there are those moments, and I will I will be happy with those moments. But I will still throw the stink eye at that scene with Peggy at the end. I, yeah, I I really do feel uneasy about what they were sort of yeah. associating, basically. So yeah, do you have any other thoughts about Fargo season two? No, I two, think Ron? that does it for our uh, for for our spoiler section. Uh, so I guess we'll we'll have to do another one of these sometime. Maybe about the yeah. uh, maybe about the expanse. Maybe about a, a perish the thought of video game. Oh my goodness, we should totally do that. Maybe when you finish uh, Life is Strange, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> perhaps. Exactly. <laughs> That'd be great. Awesome. Well, if you've stayed with us this long, for Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo. Wishing you the finest of idle weekends. Oh, I forgot to uh, wish you condolences on, on Buddy Cianci. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, Buddy. Poor Buddy. You, you magnificent bastard. Oh, he really was. I need to God. read that book about him, The Prince of Providence. Oh my! Um, my sister has it. I think I might. Uh, I might borrow it. <laughs> it just sounds. It sounds like he was one of the last great, like, colorful, corrupt mayors. Oh, for sure. My did, God. But did he actually do great things for the city? Oh, he really did. Yeah, that's the thing. Providence was a shithole until basically the '90s, and you know, when he made it, you know, tourist friendly and small business friendly, and all sorts of other really good stuff. He really did do a lot. I mean, that's how he got you know, elected again after 
spending four years in jail, basically. <laughs> God, I mean, it, I just love that it's like, well, he was convicted of a felony twice, but never had a problem getting elected. It's like, yeah, what does that tell you about Rhode Island? God, I wish the Coen brothers would make a movie about Buddy Cianci. Now that, oh, man, that'd be that great. Who do you cast would be amazing. <laughs> that would be incredible. I mean, do you just go Clooney? <laughs> do you just get Clooney? And oh, yeah, you accent? could totally go Clooney. God, he would he would sell the shit out of that. 